Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquirers Funds. For regulatory reasons, we will not discuss any of the Acquirers Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquirers Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Good morning, afternoon, amigos. It is 10.30 a.m. on the West Coast, 1.30 p.m. on the East Coast, 5.30 p.m. UTC. I think it's like 3.30 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. If you want to watch Value After Hours live, you need to go to the YouTube page for the Acquirers podcast and click to get a notification. And then you'll be able to come in. What's happening, fellas? Love and life. Got yeah, uh, got good. some retail friends telling me, uh, I don't know, there was some IPO that popped like 50% yesterday. They want to get in and out real quick. <laughs> I said, I'm not an advisor, but I don't think that's a game that you really want to play. And they were like, yeah, but it went up 50% today. So that's still out there. That's good. Yeah. Keep, keep some froth on. A little bit of risk on. Is it Buffett's birthday today? Happy birthday, no. Buffett. Oh, August 30th. Oh, mm. that's sad that you know that, brother. <laughs> it's kind of nice in a way. I'm just teasing him. I think, uh, JT, you've got some good veggies for us today. What, what, are you, what are you talking about today? Yeah, I might. Uh, I've got a little segment prepared on adaptive radiation. So we'll see if see where that takes us. What about you, BB? What are you doing? I may adapt my conversation after hearing uh, Jake's stuff. I don't know. I was thinking about shouting out some ideas that I think are worth doing some research on. I like that. I've seen a couple of things. Um, I think we're probably going to have to talk about how the Archegos, Arch, I don't know how you say it, Arch, uh, and and Wang have... Um, not going yeah. to trade anymore? <laughs> Uh, total return swaps to get fifteen billion dollars of equity up to eighty to a hundred billion dollars in uh, mm-hmm. some of these uh, um, high flying names, but maybe maybe they were like helping a few of the squeezes, GME and uh, being the notable one, and then Viacom, I guess, and Discovery. What do you guys make of that? I told you guys that I didn't like Viacom and Discovery's 2025 multiples last week versus <laughs> Netflix, I think. So it turns out that was right. <laughs> Winner. Well, like GME, the funny thing is that those were all undervalued. The Discovery and Viacom and GME were all sitting in uh, my screens for a while. So it's it's a little bit of a change that the, the big runs are now seem to me to be coming out of deep value. I kind of hope that that sustains for a little while. Although my topic is going to be on quality in a little bit. And I don't think they do very well on the quality metrics. Yeah, I guess the only thing that I would say is undervalued implies some terminal value certainty that I do not have in those names. In Discovery? Yeah. It's just a content maker. They'll just find a, another way of distributing their content. I, I, we've we've discussed it before. I know I that guess. It's not. It's not that... It's not... It might I mean, look, be it can co- work. It can work. I And Malone's behind it. I got love for Malone. I'm not a Zaslav fan. I've been on the record. But he's done some good things. The scripts acquisition made sense. So I, I may be too biased negatively on that one. I, I'm open to that criticism. So, so, But let's talk about... So the reason that this Tiger Cub... Um, the story's like kind of wild. Like he had criminal charges brought against him for insider trading. And uh, then he's not been, so that's why he's converted into a family office. And he's still able to get, you know, $80 billion of leverages. I mean, $80 billion on $15 billion of equity. I'm, I'm kind of, um, I'm a little bit envious, honestly. Like, Is this, well, he's are we trading on about... inside information. You'd want to lever that up, wouldn't you? Uh, that's fair. Yeah. So he's probably going to make his money. 
I'm not uncertain. I mean, I don't know. About I don't know. If you guys, let's go. <laughs> I'm not trying to get us in legal trouble. Is this guy Bobby Axelrod or is he uh, <laughs> Huang? I don't. I'm not sure who's who at this point. You guys ever watch Billions? I, I've yeah. seen. I saw the first episode, but I just. I like Bobby Axelrod. Good character. Yeah, we've. It's uh. I think the first three seasons are all available on uh, Amazon right now. They're pretty fun. I wife and I have been watching them, which even to get her to watch something even remotely finance related is a is a big win for me. So <laughs> is it finance? Uh, is it is it too it's, close to home for you? No, I mean, I, I have to I explain think... a few things here and there to her, but you don't need a ton of finance background to really like it's still just about characters at the end of the day, right? Yeah, but the guys who wrote it um, are the same guys that did uh, rounders. If you like rounders, which oh, are they I do. the same guys? Yeah, oh. Brian Koppelman. And, rounders was uh, rounders was good. Having pl- having played a little bit more poker though, like, rounders is a little bit cringeworthy now. Like the the tell is that he's like twisting the the biscuits open and and licking the cream out of the middle. Like not going to last very long. Cookies here, not biscuits. the cookies. Yeah, they're not biscuits, bro. They're Oreos made by <sighs> Mondelez, owned by Bill Ackman, who you quoted today. Akatek, is that right? Or at least there it was go. at one time. Yeah. I like that. I like that quote from Akatek. I'm going to talk a little bit about Ackman and quality when it's my segment. But I, I, I think that uh, JT's got the um, JT's got well, the let's, conch. Let's wrap up that like conversation on this. These really, I guess it's you call it, like derivatives, right? That are using to get extreme exposure. I mean, it's not. What it's, is? I don't. I don't think there's anything. Well, what's this, the SEC doing if not raining like this kind of stuff in? I don't know that there's all that they're doing. All that I, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with using total return swaps for this sort of stuff. Like all, all that they're doing is saying rather than us going and trying to trade this stuff, which would be a nightmare, you go and put these positions on for us and give us the benefit of we, we, we'll take the we'll take the move in it. You get a fee. You can offload your exposure to other people on the other side who want to get on the other side of this. That, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with the tool that they're using. But if there's insider trading going on and they're using it as a method to disguise who's actually benefiting um, beneficially from those things, then yeah, that's a problem. Which but probably those are unrelated. They were unrelated claims, right? Like it's not like that. Nobody's saying this guy he was using. Well, or are people saying that he was using inside information to get this leverage? I think they're saying it was. I think they're saying it was uh, a squeeze. He was, you know, yeah. which is manipulation, squeezing like GME, squeezing Viacom. Because my sense was this, that was a, a secondary factoid of the story. It was not the primary factoid. That, but I, I don't really... The fact that they I were using the swaps. Attention, and I'm very happy not to be. No, the insider trading allegation. That was an, I, I don't know that that's necessary. That was an... He was criminally... Yeah, that's just like some old stuff. That's not that old. That's <laughs> old. If we forgive very quickly, I guess. What, what crimes have you done for me lately? <laughs> well, how old is it? It's like yeah. it, the 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 family office is only a couple of years old. Yeah, well, I'm just saying that's, that doesn't have anything to do with this current position. No, it doesn't. But no, it doesn't. That's fair. It's just a pattern of like slightly un- or unethical to, to criminal behavior. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad I don't have a SEC settlement or whatever. But I I don't know anything about the background of this. Happily so, I have not paid much attention to this. I'm just blown away by the scale of it. Ha- ha- He's got oh, dude, eighty billion dollars. That's that's nuts. Yeah, I don't know. Is it? Listen, you're still rolling around with that kind of leverage. That's yeah, bananas. That's, that's a lot of money. Some people like yeah. the game, man. Yeah, but play the game with your fifteen billion. Don't play it with the leverage. You, you, you don't. You Says don't, the guy who doesn't have fifteen billion. That's true. Didn't lever up <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah. You didn't get to 15 million. As we always say, uh, easy, easy to save from the peanut gallery, bro. 100 percent true. It's it's always the case when we're talking about like Roaring Kitty. Like Roaring Kitty got to whatever he topped out at, like 48 million. I, I don't I don't know if it's all over yet. I'm just saying. I think that was the highest number that I saw that he'd sort of made. But and everybody's like, you know, 48 million dollars in GameStop. Like take it Hell. off. But people were saying that to him at 24 million, and they were wrong. At 12 million, they were wrong. Six million, two, three million, two million. Yeah. <laughs> I took. I would you know, have taken it off at two fifty. The thing about his position <laughs> is, once it hit that value, then like you can actually get out of it, right? Like he, he, I bet he was a 
big percentage of the open interest. Because he had the liquidity. Because there yeah. was liquidity there. Yeah, I mean, that's... That's the... right. Like, it would have been a... I mean, I don't know what he did, but it would have been a smart time to at least get out of some of it because you can. Well, he's got the diamond hands, mate. You don't get there if, you, if, you, if you're shipping it. Yeah, no doubt. But you also don't get there if you think you own something and then you go to sell it and there's no bid. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the value strategy, right? Buy it when it's illiquid. Ship it when it gets some liquidity. Yeah, that's how that's how value arbs Theory. liquidity. I think so, yeah. The old liquidity arb. You take, you know, you'd, I've, I've done this before. It takes you weeks to soak up a position in some terrible little net net and then something comes along and it gets a little bit of attention and all of a sudden there's some liquidity in it. If I was smart, that was when I would have sold it rather than when it went back down again. I bought something that's pretty illiquid and I've been sitting out there just waiting to sell it. It doesn't sell. So I own it. Yeah. Whatever. You you gotta be uh you gotta be patient. That's the name of the game. It's it's Yo, like enforced patience. I mean I I do care, otherwise I wouldn't be trying to sell it, but um whatever. I'm fine owning it. Let's let's do a topic. What All do you right. got, JT? Alright, so today's veggie segment is on this idea uh, from evolutionary biology called adaptive radiation. And I'll read a couple of kind of uh, definitions of it that might help start us. Um, So one definition is it's the diversification of a group of organisms into forms filling different ecological niches. Another one is a relatively fast evolution of many species from a single common ancestor, particularly when a change in environment makes new resources available. So, you know, in a kind of common or a a very static environment, nature rarely will have two types of species that are occupying the same niche because one will be a little bit better adapted than the other one and it'll drive it out and you'll you'll reach this kind of a, a static equilibrium of um, you know this this particular adaptation this species is better suited for this environment the way that it is now what ends up happening uh, you know that those niches then become homogenized by one species but when you have a lot of change then it can create these disruptions where then, all of like all these new niches open up and you'll see a, a, a large radiation of adaptation hence the name adaptive radiation that allows lots of strategies to be successful in the environment okay so you know after the dinosaurs died out there were a bunch of really weird animals that came around at that point you had these like jar- giant carnivorous birds that looked like like huge ostriches you had Apparently, these like hooved carnivores that were almost like cows, but they were like hunters. Um, giant land crocodiles, these giant cat and dog-looking hybrid uh, animals, and and of course, you know, eventually you had mammals, which had this huge sort of explosion in functionalities uh, after the dinosaurs. So, what you often see this adaptive radiation occur in an island setting because it's sort of its own little niche. And so you'll get one species that will come in and it will suddenly find, it'll it'll evolve rapidly to fill a bunch of niches within that island environment. So one example of that is the Hawaiian honey creeper, which is actually 17 different species that came from one original species probably. Uh, but it has all these different beaks that are adapted to fit the environment and take advantage of a particular resource so you have like ones that are insectivores ones that are nectivores uh which means like eating nectar uh ones that are like seed eaters they have really like flat bills for crushing the seeds and then you have these ones that are kind of more generalists um so you have these rapid adaptation to fill a particular niche toby you look like you had a question i was just gonna say something like niches get stitches but but i couldn't find a place to stick it in sensibly so keep going (laughs) okay thanks Solid contribution. <laughs> Thanks, brother. That's yeah, why I didn't that say anything. That's awesome. Appreciate that. We're all now so, dumb. <laughs> so this, like, in, in nature, any kind of disruption is what creates opportunity. And I think it's that obviously is similar to, uh, I think, economic environments as well, and maybe markets. But so our our mutual friend of the show, Rishi, uh, sent me this uh, some a recent letter from Rob Vanal who's RV Capital, um, and he 
he, and also a couple follow-up posts that he had about his letter. And uh, it's pretty interesting how it kind of ties in with this. So he's talking about, you know, investing is really about for, forecasting future cash flows, right? Like we all sort of agree that that's the game to be playing, discounted back to today. And you want to be as accurate as you can about what those future cash flows are going to look like. But the problem is, is that you can't really avoid making assumptions about what the world might end up looking like to make these cash flow predictions. So one approach is what we might call original value, right? Which is really like I'm understanding the company's history looking backwards. Uh, I know everything about it. I have to assume that the future will look something similar to what the past looked like and that there's then an expectation of reversion to the mean of you know, what the business is going to do, what the multiples that the market was willing to pay for for the business, all these things are going to revert back to the mean. And that's that's really the bet that kind of old school value has been making for 100 years. And so you think about Buffett with Amex and the salad oil scandal, right? Like that was a temporary problem, the reversion of the mean of a good business he was expecting, and he did really well with that. So the other approach potentially that you might call like newer value would be taking advantage of rapid and widespread disruption and changes and focusing then more potentially on TAMs, focusing more on network effects, growth rates, and really sort of more ignoring the past because you don't think it's a good prologue for what the future is going to look like. Really ignoring sort of the base rates and reversion to the mean and really focusing more then on the future and optionality that these businesses might create. So, you know, I think both of them have their season and sort of understanding what is maybe the next to come might tell you which way to sort of lean, whether more towards old kind of version of the mean or more towards traditional value. Now, one way to reframe this, or sorry, towards newer value, optionality. One way to reframe this conversation is to talk about explore versus exploit. And I think we've talked about this on the show before, but you know, it's really interesting to see actually ants have, through the use of their little simple minds, the way that they're programmed, their brains and their and pheromones, they're able to mathematically solve problems to do this explore versus exploit trade-off, right? And and what researchers have found is that they actually will tune the amount of exploration versus exploitation based on the rate of change within the environment. So the more change there is in the environment, the more the ants evolve towards more exploration because that is what is rewarded. But the more static the environment, the more the ants fall back towards exploitation. How are they making that determination? It evolves from the very simple, like, just machinery inside of like the little algorithm in their little ant brains that has just a few like you know sort of yes no on or off type of uh synapses that that will then emerge into this very intelligent behavior i just sort of what 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 are the criteria on which they're making those decisions because like maybe i could use them in my investment strategy Uh, i like to see ipo (laughs) valuations right um, I don't know if I have a good answer for that. I'm going to punt on that one, but I'm going to keep going instead and following my own agenda. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the more the change there is, the more that they do exploration, the more static, the more exploitation. Well, I think what's really interesting about this is that if you, if we have to remember that in markets, it's like horse race betting, right? And so what is the mispriced bet? It's not just what is likely to happen, but if everybody knows that that's what's likely to happen, the pricing can get messed up there, right? And so I think it's probably reasonable to say that 10 years ago, people sort of assume too much reversion to the mean, especially if you were a value investor. Like these businesses grew in ways that we never really would have predicted. Um, There was lots of places where reversion in the mean was just sort of dead for the last 10 years. Would even would you say it's as long as ten? Like I'd say, just even six. All right. I mean, perhaps that's twenty fifteen. I think twenty fifteen was kind of the and, and let's let's come back to this in a moment. But I think twenty fifteen is the date when it sort of changed. Yeah, when it split. So we we have the actual rate of change, 
that ended up occurring versus what was sort of we expected. And I think that there was an error made often by a lot of value investors, probably me included. And the other part of that too is sort of the skewness of the distribution. So if you have a very fat tail, especially on the right tail, um, a right tail skew, the outcomes can be so big that you can sort of underappreciate what they would look like. So it's not even just the probability, but also times the the magnitude, which is captured by the skewness of the the tails, right? So, um, so with that said, then today now let's, let's try to think about it. Like, what is the optionality? Is the of for the next ten years appropriately priced? Or have we all sort of sniffed this out now and people are potentially overpaying for that optionality? And perhaps if the next 10 years are not as different, then the right bet to make is the back to the reversion to the mean, sort of the old school um, you know, expectations, looking backwards more and not so much looking forward as where to focus your, your efforts. Um, you know, and that, that then brings us to looking at things like Carlotta Perez's, um, you know, innovation and diffusion and technological revolutions um you know like they have this explosion phase and then typically an installation and then uh kind of a it becomes a utility and then there's something else that comes along and disrupts it right and like where are we on that um and then this also gets into arguments about you know take ray kurzweil's sort of asymptotic approaching of just this the runaway. singularity yeah, the singularity and these, you know, at, um, nonlinear exponential technologies versus Peter Thiel holding up an iPhone and saying this is not the equivalent of putting a man on the moon, um, and maybe that that we're not as advanced as far as maybe some of us think in certain realms. So, I don't have a ton of answers, but I think it's an interesting question to think about: is the is the rate of change that's implied over the next ten years mispriced in today's today's prices almost certainly <laughs> i'm glad you have an answer <laughs> that yeah, was easy here's yeah, so here's my th here's my theory I'm, I'm clearly i'm being i'm being a little bit facetious but i think that when we in 2015 I, and i always point out the article that you wrote in 2015 about dispersion of valuations being the pr pretty good predictor of how you know one side of the distribution will perform what happened in 2015 is the dispersion of, of valuations got very tight. So you were junky companies were as expensive as you know potentially high growth, high quality companies, and you could see that in if you went to the Morningstar style dashboard where they have that little grid and they show size and value and growth on the different axes. Everything was basically the same PE, whether it was small or large, and whether it was growth or value, and that doesn't make sense. The yeah. faster growing, better quality companies deserve a higher multiple than, than the other stuff. And the result of that was, as that distribution went back to a more, not, not normal in the sense of a normal distribution, but the more ordinary, the more usual course, uh, we saw the higher growth stuff outperform massively and the value stuff stumble for like the last six years at least. But I think now we're at the point where the distribution is very, very wide, which if you can think about it another way, what that means is that the, the high uh, growth stuff is extremely expensive and the lower quality value stuff is roughly around its long run mean. But on a relative basis, you would expect the cheaper stuff to do better than the more expensive stuff. And I think that's probably what happens over the next five or 10 years. I'm talking my book a little bit, but I, I think that the lesson that I learned in 2000 well, I didn't learn it in 2015 took a few years after that to learn it but I do think that that's <laughs> that's the lesson and I and I kind of feel like the way that the reason that that growth stuff works so well is because it was unusually cheap we can look at anything like you know Microsoft in 2010 I guess that's a little bit of 10 11 12 a lot of those things were just cheap and that, that's that allows you to not pay much for the optionality which creates the the, the huge returns Billy, what do you think? I don't know. I, I mean, I guess it kind of all depends on... I, I guess when Toby's talking, he's talking about buckets. So I understand that argument. I guess that um, one, of the, one of the things that I think that 
you can do with some quality companies that you can't do with the companies in cheaper buckets as well um, is like underwrite to what you think sort of base cash flows are. Right. So I think a lot of like the cheaper bucket coming into coronavirus to expose like how cyclical those businesses are. Um, and, you know, like so a business like booking, right, was able to flex down its cost structure commensurate with sort of its business and survive as as opposed to like you know the airline so I, I there's just no world that those two businesses should ever trade at the same multiple um now i, I guess you could say well if i'm just going to harvest all the cash then what do i care as long as my through cycle analysis is correct um and i think that that's that's somewhat true but i also think that that like I think that that kind of ignores how the world actually works. Um, and I guess that it's, it's like, uh, I just think a lot of the times like class A real estate versus class C real estate. I mean, some, you know, apartment complex in Kansas city is never going to trade at the cap rate of New York city apartments, but every once in a while, New York city apartments is going to get whacked. And, you know, if you own those at the wrong time, you're going to get whacked with it. But, like expecting those cap, like expecting your your entry cap rate on an A class building to mirror your C class. I just don't think you get that many opportunities in life. So if you want to have the strategy of well, I'm just going to wait, then like that's cool. But then you have to actually be willing to wait, uh, and and that means sometimes having a ten year you know underperformance. You you got some risk and liquidity problems in there, right? So I. If you th- if you flip it around and think about it, efficient markets, you know, as a theory, I don't think works very well. But as a, or, or sorry, empirically it doesn't work very well. But theoretically, I don't mind it as a, as as an idea that you get compensated for risk. Like that's almost certainly true, right? You get compensated for illiquidity. So, Class A building in New York in Manhattan, I'll bet you you can ship that pretty quickly. Class C building in a third tier market. I bet you that's a really illiquid thing, and so you would expect that you would get a higher return. You'd expect that you you would ha- you would be stuck in it for longer, and you have no guarantee if, of well, what sort of price you're going to get if you want to get out. So you should be compensated more for that. Yeah, but I'm going to argue one more fact in this. I would also argue to you that if you lose a tenant in your Class A building in New York, you can replace that tenant much easier, right? So your underlying cash flows are, I would argue, more stable in a normal environment. No, I understand no this dispute. is an odd odd time to have this discussion in COVID. I get that. But just, you know. In the ordinary course, Let's that's go true. back to 2019. I did see that uh, office vacancies were at like a, as high as back to like 2003. You know what pivot I thought was kind of interesting today was, uh, and I don't, I don't listen to him as much anymore, but Galloway, uh, I turned on the Recode podcast today and he was actually like, he referred to himself as cowish, uh, so not bullish, but no longer bearish on WeWork. And I thought that that was kind of an, I mean, he was really negative on WeWork. And his point today was, you know, now you've got a completely different dynamic in commercial real estate. And you've got sort of actually a brand. And it's no longer run by a lunatic. It's actually like professionally managed. I don't know. That's kind of an intriguing idea. I guess it's going public via SPAC. I don't Imagine know. if they could have held their bullets until right now to have fired at buying all this real estate up to convert into WeWorks. Like they'd look like geniuses. Plus, the other side a... of it, though, man, is like they created this brand. I mean, I, I get that like what they did was crazy, but uh, would they have been them if they waited? I mean, I'm not sure. Somebody else, in theory, has the dry powder. Go get it and do it. I mean, the I other mean, th- one thing that is not scarce right now is capital. The other, the other. Th- I, I do think that they've like that idea of you know kind of outsourced office space. That, that's clearly that's got to be a theme that's going to work for a period of time. Not everybody wants to work from home, but not everybody's going to want to build a head office either. There must be some sort of like I want to go to a place where there are, where I have an office and there are other people working in a building around me. I don't necessarily want them to be in my business. I just want them to be nearby. So I've got you know other you know I'm not at home with three kids. You know, trying to- <laughs> yeah. Trying to shout at me, yeah. while I'm trying to record. You want a podcast. someone else to cough on you for a while? <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. 
Well, that's what Galloway was saying, and he's like, and they have a brand, and they've got sort of, you know, like an a, they've got an ability to sort of like they've got like this forward thinking feel, and it might people may end up outsourcing a lot of their office decisions to them. I thought that was an interesting pivot. Usually, when it people go sense. from that bearish to sort of cowish on an idea. It can make some sense to pay attention. It just I'm not entirely convinced that WeWork is the vehicle that gets you there, but I, I think that that theme is a good one. I think that if, you, if you're if you've got some way of like building a network of these offices, so that if I go to another city, I can just check into that office and I can rent an office for the day, so I can sit in there and have a place to meet people. Like that's a, that's a great idea. That's got to be something that will be around in the not too distant future. Yeah, They've I mean, I think forever. somebody's like Regis. Yeah, yeah but Regis is garbage. Well, but the concept is not new. Is what no, I'm the saying. concept, but but you know, there's a big difference between WeWork and Regis. Like Regis, you just want to—they're dark and they're awful. Whereas the WeWorks were really pretty. Like that—that that is a big difference in between the two. Somebody will figure that out and say, "Look, it's an app on your phone that you can check in anywhere, and we can just bill you easily, or it's recurring revenue, or whatever it is." There's some solution to it that is a good one. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, like, uh, you know, what's, there's no difference between Starbucks and a coffee shop in theory, but in practice, there's a huge difference. Right. I mean, that would be that, that that's this offices that turn into coffee shops, coffee shops that turn into offices. That's the, that's the direction we're going to go. You either, yeah. you either pay for your office space and get your coffee for free or you pay for your coffee and you get your office space for free. You think those are the only two outcomes? That's the only two possibilities. Yeah, there's nothing. I like else. it. <laughs> Office Max is trying to lease you your office space and hope you buy a printer. I don't think that that's going to work as well. I don't think that'll work as well. Maybe it might though. Who knows? Maybe. Maybe they just let you come in and print free for paper. Free, but you got to replace the ink. It. And just Jesus. bend you over on the ink. Well, they already do, don't they? Yeah. yeah what if hard. What if they subdivided the ink and ended up charging you even more? That would be just terrible. So, ink, ink as a service. That's yeah, what I need. Yeah, yes. I like it. I think there's something there, man. I mean, these printers nowadays are so disposable. They're practically printing as a service. The printer is less, costs you less than the ink does. They just give the way. The printer's like the razor, razor blade model. I'm pretty sure I was reading Verizon's Investor Day, and I think that they referred to their network as a network as a service. Oh, Jesus. I just thought that was the service. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize. We're throwing the telephone calls the for free. As a service. service as a service. That's right, yeah. Books, reading as a service. All right, let me do my, let me do my silly topic. Uh, so I saw this uh, tweet this morning, pretty interesting, that quality has um, been beaten up. So that everybody knows that value has been smashed up because I talk about that all the time. Value Quality has also been smashed up. And I think most value guys out there are not pure value guys. Nobody's just buying on a price to book multiple and hoping that that works out. Everybody's doing some additional work in there. So quality is relevant to most value investors too. So uh, I don't have a great, I don't have a great graphic to show everybody, but um, I thought it was, I, I thought it was an interesting it's kind of. I'm gonna. I'm gonna hold this up to the screen. So if you, if you, whoops, whoops, Ooh, this whoops. is high tech. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Look at that. Yeah, that's a pretty good drop. So what? Basically, what that's because everybody who's listening at home and those who couldn't see when I held it up, basically, uh, that's long top quality sh- stocks, short low quality stocks. Uh, everybody might be aware. Last year, uh, bad quality had this exponential run massive run out of the bottom so most of the time it doesn't it's not a good thing to be long low quality stocks and low quality in this definition is stuff that's not turning its earnings into cash flows stuff that has debt on its balance sheet stuff that's not particularly profitable is low quality if you own good quality stuff typically it does better than low quality stuff if you add a value tilt to that as well you do very very well value and quality uh, work really nicely together unless you get into a market like last year's where any sort of fundamental uh kind of worked in it and i've talked about this a little bit in the past aqr did the great study where they showed that the fundamentals were reversed in 99 and 2000 fundamentals were also reversed in 2019 and 2020 kind of amazing um symmetry 
what a coincidence between between those two things. So I, I to, to, more to your point earlier, Jake, I do think that we're setting up for a really nice value quality run here over the next five or ten years. I, I think that, that that's not necessarily uh, to say that I don't think that so within the tech stocks, I think there are some there are some incredibly high quality, reasonably valued things in there. I think some of those will do quite well. The things that don't look like that though are going to struggle, and I, I think that there's going to be less uh, equity capital around for a lot of these companies. It's going to make it a little bit harder. So I think that being having that already on your balance sheet or generating in your business uh, that's going to be useful in a time of scarcity, which we're probably going to come into over the next few years. I think for a variety of reasons, which we can get into too. Any thoughts on that? What are your reasons? Let's get into it. I think that we've had this. We, 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 there's been this huge demand for equity over the last sort of even even nine months, which is what what has created this spac boom. That they're just man- like NFTs, NFTs, I mean, but but spacs in particular, because I think that spac is like we can't. We're we're so hungry for equity. If you give us cash, we'll give you back equity to the value of your cash. And people prefer that. And here's what we're going to do with the equity. We're going to go and buy something that looks like, you know, the way we describe it. And when we find it to buy, you'll get the opportunity at that point to say yes or no. And you can probably get your cash back if you say no. And that that's appealing to a lot of people. Like that's a that's an unusual market where we're so hungry for equity that we'll go enter into an arrangement like that. Most of the time it's a little bit harder than that. You need kind of someone who's a pretty well-known investor at the helm who's got a good track record in the particular thing that they're trying to acquire. And I think the same thing that happened in 2007, 8, 9, where busted SPACs uh, get arbitraged is the more likely outcome. So people go whacking those things for the cash in them rather than just buying them, thinking they're going to get a big pop when they announce an acquisition. Yeah, pinatas. <laughs> right. Isn't IPOE like right around trust value? I think, I think there I are a few of them. Say that. I think yeah. I think Yaren said that the other day. If you if you that were would be interesting. If you if weren't expecting were the huge pop, though, if if you're not expecting the huge pop, what's the reason for doing these things? Yeah, but you are. Chamath well, that's, is that's right. like a freaking promoter. So you're buying it near trust value, and then you get the option of him doing the hype machine. I see Virgin Galactic's down about fifty three percent from its peak. Yeah, bro, but it mooned before it went down fifty-three <laughs> percent. So that's uh, like nobody, nobody's saying, "Oh, I'm looking to own the operating company." When they say this is trading next to trust value, and you get the option on of him promoting it, like that's a totally different statement. I understand that, like that the, that's what is that is what happening. But so is that what right should be happening? You want to make money, you nerd. <laughs> the rocket ship is going to right. blow up, but it, it might get you to Mars first. We don't know yet. Look, it's it not could blow up. It's not it's the not re-entry into the atmosphere though. that kills you. It's the impact. And at the moment, all we've done is re-entered the atmosphere. So there's no problem with, with this rocket launch yet, is what you're saying. No, I mean, look, here's what I'm saying. Let's say that, let's say that Virgin Galactic had like $15 in trust value, which I don't even know if that's true or not, but let's just say it did. And you bought it in March of 2020, you're up 2x. So like, yeah, I agree that if you bought it in you know, February 3rd, when everybody's was all hyped up, you got screwed. But like the longer term, people are still up to X. So I, don't, I mean, I just don't know. I know it's frustrating some, to say it that I've way, but it's also not rates, true. Though, and they're not they're not good. Yeah, I don't I mean, I don't I'm not saying go out and buy a bunch of SPAC. <laughs> <laughs> We're definitely not, not saying that. I'm, yeah. I'm saying there there may be one that's close to trust value that's got arguably the best promoter in the world at a time where promotion is being very uh, highly rewarded. To me, that seems like a downside upside that makes some sense. Now, I understand value people be like, isn't that close to speculation? No, it's not close. It is. So I acknowledge it. But that doesn't mean that you can't make some money on it. I think that game's almost played out. I don't oh, know how many times. Do. I think it's almost there. Well, then we need an inning update. <laughs> I, I don't I don't think I, I don't think that I told you guys I just got an offer on land that's not even on the market that I bought in September that somebody almost doubled my value. I, I don't think that we're at the point where like capital is scarce. And until capital is scarce, I think yield is gonna be hard to come by. And when yield's hard to come by, I think people do really dumb shit. I just don't I I don't see why this ends. 
And I, I get that that's what everybody says near a top. Like, I get it. And I totally understand that there's a lot of froth. But, like, I'm, I'm I don't think we're near a top. I think we've gone past it. I think we're on the other yeah, side already. I mean, maybe. I don't know. The fucking market's flat and up this year. So it's hard for me to see how we're past the top. Definitely in some of those names. Yeah. Like, there's been some things that have connect, corrected 50%. But, yeah. okay, like, there's always stupid stuff. It's all coming from one particular uh, area, though. Doesn't that make you a little bit kind of... I mean, Aaron or Eccles, Eccles building? <laughs> yeah, well, coming... that... oh, I don't think it's coming from one particular area. I think it's coming from everywhere. No, there's definitely... There's a concentration in the... in The, the stuff that did well last year is suffering this year. And the stuff that suffered this year last year is doing a little bit better this year. But, dude, it was up like 4X. It's not over yet, So, though. like, yeah, it pulled back a little bit. A little bit. 53% quite a lot. Help me with this math. If you're up 4X and you're down 50%, you're roughly up 2X in 12 months. Fair enough. That's like a pretty good return. How many of the people who bought it and who are up 4X are now down on the 53%? I'll bet you that if you look at the flows into that thing, the vast majority of the people on a VWAP basis are down. Yeah, well, that's why people should listen to us. Those are trading sardines, mate. Those aren't eating sardines. Yeah, well... I, I don't I don't disagree there. I just don't think that we're past the top. I mean, I, I, I don't know, I, but I've always said I don't know how to ring the bell at the top. No, nah, nobody does. I'm, I'm being facetious, but I, I kind of I think that this is when the when the speculative stuff starts falling over, then you get it's close to the end. Ninth inning, bottom of the ninth. I guess, dude. Gun to my head, I'd take duration here. Do you want to do your topic? Well, I mean, like Grantham says that, you know, that the peak, the day after the peak is just a little bit less optimistic than the peak was. <laughs> just a yeah. touch. As Bill may say, if you've been wrong for 10 years, you're just a little closer to being right today than you were <laughs> for the last 10 years. That's um, true. No, I don't, you know, I just, I, there have been some, like, people that have sent some good ideas, uh, things that I think are worth uh, research uh, one arbitraging time uh, sent uh, legacy housing. I thought that's an interesting idea for people. Uh, I, uh, Jeremy Raper was out there talking about some Polish trash company that's trading at like 13 times earnings. Uh, I pinged my father-in-law because he's Polish about that. Uh, if I get any good scuttlebutt from over there, like I don't know. I think I think if you get outside of some of like the SaaS compound accounts, uh, there's some some people that are pitching some pretty interesting things right now. I mean, like Yarin, I, I do think if it is true, and I'm attributing it correctly, if I'm not, I apologize, but he goes by one main capital or that's what he runs. If it's true that there is a, a, a Chamath SPAC that's close to trust value, like I think that's a bet that could be worth making for the right ask, you know, like part of a portfolio. So is that I uh, the guy that looks like Tony Romo in his uh, Twitter. I don't know, man, but he's a sharp dude. Um, I I was uh, I've been fortunate enough to talk to him a couple times, and I, I like how he he thinks of the world. Um, so I just you know I don't know. Look out there. There's some good ideas out there, regardless of how much froth there is. I think that's good advice. I mean, you should you should never turn it off, right? You should yeah. always at least be exploring. I mean, shit, even Big Laurie ripped. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, Anything's but I, possible. <laughs> if you believe anything is what, possible. I was having a, Magical thinking. I was having a, a conversation with an insurance broker who I didn't, like, I mean, I, I know the guy. He, he doesn't, uh, he strikes me as thoughtful uh, and he places like business risk. He was waxing poetic on Markel. Those insurance names, I think, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I think, I think there's a lot of good stuff out there. Don't let, don't let some of the headlines scare you away from doing work. Is sort of the takeaway here. I mean, I'd say that the undervalued quality, the quality and undervalued quality, uh, probably once in a cycle opportunity right now. So definitely, don't be not doing anything. Like just be hunting in undervalued quality. That's where you want to be right now. Yeah, I'm some just some interesting carnage in the weed names too. It's not a sector I know well, but what 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 do you like in there? I mean, I don't know that I like anything. I just think it's an interesting thing to be looking at. I guess that uh, 
I think some of this risk off appetite has taken some flows out of MSOS and MSOS has been constructed through like total return, total return swaps and it's creating some selling pressure. So I don't know. I do think people are going to be smoking a lot more weed in the future than they are today. Then you just got to figure out all the hard questions between uh, that conclusion and which one to invest in. So good luck. That's a good <laughs> when you find them. Let me know. I'd, I'd buy the whole, I'd buy the whole complex for a certain price to asset value. If that was to be available. Mepfaber has a good, a lot of in, what? Mepfaber has a good, white paper on it when he launched his uh when he launched his etf toke uh t-o-k-e he wrote a white paper about uh looking at the marijuana growth of marijuana as a new industry and he he looked at the growth of alcohol i think it was post prohibition uh all the brands that came in and he said that the entire industry did about 20 percent a year um that article is now a few years old, so you get an opportunity to see how that has all kind of held up since since he did that. But if you're interested in it, that's probably a good place to start. Have a look at Meb's piece, and then you know an ETF is a an easy way to play that thematically. What's Not financial advice. Got to get over on Toke right now. I wonder the price what? to book on it. I don't know. Book doesn't matter. I mean, it matters, but the issue is like if you're paying. So I think that you have a couple questions to figure out if book matters. One, is interstate commerce going to be mandated? Two, if so, can these states still have some sort of licensing program? Because if so, then like if you paid 30 grand for a license and you have an exclusive right to sell in a state, like book value doesn't mean shit. If they can't have those licenses, you know, then your book value might matter a lot, right? Because then you're getting closer to maybe what your distribution replication costs are. There's a there's a price to book level for it where I don't care about the answer to that. Yeah, but I mean, there's probably going to be some other stuff going on. But I I don't disagree. Are any of them making any money? People, I mean, they're, they're all. I mean, they're all. No, top... they pay everything out in tax. Yeah, right. The top lines look alright, but their they're... tax obligations are insane. That's why everybody cites EBITDA. The notepad is gnarly. Yeah. Because you're paying, you pay tax on like gross profit. You can't even deduct any operating expenses. That's, that's rough. Yeah, that's that is rough. Punishing. So I guess like that's why I'm sort of intrigued by the idea because I do think that there's a thousand reasons to say no, but there may be reasons to say yes. And as those reasons to say no become sort of like less and less obvious, you would think valuations have a reasonable probability of going higher. Three questions in Amigas, uh, if you have any. We'll, we'll take a swing at them. I think we forgot to do that last week, so we'll, we'll do it this week. And Amigas. And Amig- well, Amigas is right. uh, the collective captures one, both. It's only if there's... One Amiga. <laughs> if it's five girls and one boy, it's Amigas. If it's five That's girls, it's Amigas. Shit, Come on, the That's the language. Come That's on. the language. Jeez. Dang. Toby loves the man. Which man? <laughs> just the just the man, all caps. Yeah, just in general. Yeah, here's a good question from VSG. This might be one for you, Bill. How are they getting around the fact they can't use the banking system? I thought they had to do most things in actual cash. Yeah, they do. It's a big problem. But the other side is if they can't get access to the capital, then the people that actually can figure out how to operate should be able to expand their moat a little bit before sort of I, I think that the, the biggest risk to the entire thesis is all of a sudden they all have to compete on an interstate basis. The licenses aren't protected and capital just floods the industry. And that to me is like just a catastrophic outcome for equity. Well, when when it happened to alcohol, the thing that helped the booze companies succeed was the best brands. Like you wanted to be in a brand. I think it's probably true here as well. I, I don't know any brands in the space, but if you were... You know, you need the Smirnoff or you need the um, Jack Daniels. You need, you know, you kind of need that protection, something that everybody recognizes. Yeah. Yeah, but where did that come from? I think, and Bill, you probably speak better to this, but I mean, it was was a scale game, which allowed you to then spread your advertising over more, a bigger people, which created the brand, which allowed you to charge a little bit more. Yeah, I think that's right. I also think like... um... I don't know. I think booze is heavier to. I, th- I think there were like local 
boundaries that created sort of brands, right? Like St. Louis was Budweiser and sort of up in Chicago was Miller Lite. I don't know. I don't know why those actually. Oh, I think it's going to go all macro. And so there's uh, this terrible macro weed. I, I really prefer it when it was the artisanal, uh, you know, small supply. The yeah, weird, the weird flavor. Weed. Yeah. Craft weed. Yeah, there you go. No, yeah. Shitty bud. I want the Sam Adams. The, the bud of bud. <laughs> Well, and like you're, it's weed cool, is a whole lot easier to grow than like moonshine is to make, right? So plus it probably, I don't know, I haven't had moonshine in a while, but uh, I I suspect the you're not going to have like all of the. I bet I bet there's more illicit weed in your mature state than the, there is illicit alcohol. Mississippi moonshine's like fortified wine. It's like fourteen percent alcohol. Really? Waste of time. Go the hard yeah, stuff. that is a waste of time. Uh, what metrics do that Appalachian moonshine? <laughs> yeah, that stuff's rocket fuel. What metrics do we use to hunt for quality? So there's a good paper out there by Cliff Asness, uh, AQR, really recent one, where they're talking about quality, um, and so they go through in detail all of the the ratios in that. But it's basically a you know more cash on the balance sheet than debt, uh, cash flows rather than um, you know, losses, uh, higher returns on equity than lower returns on equity. That's a little mean reverting for my taste. But Who you... wants all that bullshit? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well. More cash and debt. You it can still have some It didn't work last year. It definitely didn't work last year. It was inverted last year. Inverted. You know, like in, where's my camera? Yeah, like Top inverted. Gun. Top Gun. But uh, you, in the ordinary course, it Toby, works. What do, you, what do you think of like Norby Marks? Yeah, Novi Marks, so that's gross profits on total assets. I think that like anything else, um, it has a it, it has some marginal utility. It does seem that there is a relationship. I don't think it like you know, we run quantitative value, we use the Novi Marks metric as a substitute for return on invested capital, and we use price to book as a substitute for EV EBIT, just to create an academic uh, version of the magic formula. It it does all right, but all the returns are still driven by the value side. Novimarks does seem to add something at the edges, like as a quality metric, it does well. But you still, I don't think you, I don't want to go and buy quality absent value. I I want to buy undervalued quality. That's sort of what I'm trying to do, and I define quality x the ROE metric. So uh, mine's more of a I like cash flows, and I like cash rich balance sheets, and I like management doing something about it. I think that's a better kind Why of metric. ROE? It's mean reverting. It's highly mean reverting. For most stocks, it's highly mean reverting. There's going to be like a, it's literally 4% of stocks that s- seem to resist the mean reversion in return on equity. And I don't know that you can identify them prospectively, or I think it's extremely difficult to identify them prospectively. Having said that, it does seem to be that there are some that exhibit some persistence. So if you buy those ones with the persistence, aware of the fact that they can lose it at any point and you just need to be Johnny on the spot when that happens, I think you're okay. I didn't know if part of the issue was buybacks sort of like ruin the equity. Oh, you mean they, they make the calculation difficult? Yeah. That seems That's the Not case with something like Maccas. They make it less relevant to reality. Just a more difficult calculation, I mean, rather than... Like super hard to do it on cigarette companies, for instance. <clears throat> yeah. Pretty sure they all have negative equity. Yeah. Anything that's been doing buybacks and, and paying dividends yeah. for a long time doesn't have any capital left in their business. Um, is quality hidden from financials? Oops, hang on, let me pull this up. Oh. I don't think so. I think you can do it quantitatively. Um, um, is qual- is quality hidden from financials? Do you have to go open and go deep stock by stock A to Z? I think that I think that it's in the financials for the most part. I think you can. Um, I think you can do it quantitatively. I think when you're in that, when you're looking at the the four percent, when you're looking at the mean reversion, when you're looking at sorry, mean reversion return on equity, I think you need to find another reason why they're going. They're not going to mean revert. That's not quantitative. I think that's a qualitative exercise. Uh, and I think it's extremely difficult to do. I don't know that there are any people out there necessarily who would... I think there are more people who think they're doing it than are actually doing it. It's a- yeah, I, want, I can't help but wonder if... like, So I think, if I remember correctly, like CPG as a, 
as sort of a industry has done really resisted that ROI mean reversion better than others. And I can't help but wonder if that wasn't just sort of a a glitch in the matrix for a period of time. And there's a lot of guys that were really high quality investors that tended to get into CPG and they've rode that to incredible results and like career making kind of results. And I'm, I'm, I'm a little skeptical that that's, that you could repeat that. Pretty rude to say that about Buffett. Well, I know he's one of them. I think a lot of that was it was a scale game, right? There were supermarkets that had finite space and lots of distribution. So if you were big enough and you could pay to get your products prominently three featured, TV channels and three TV channels, yeah, showed all your ads yeah. continuously. That was a good strategy for a long time, but now I think that a lot of people are shopping in different, you know, shopping through Amazon rather than shopping at the supermarket. And I think that's why there's a resurgence in craft beer boutique anything people want better quality small batch stuff rather than the mass stuff and so that's going to be a much more difficult game to play and i think we've already seen that in a lot of those names are starting to look cheapish and i don't know if that's because they actually are cheaper if this is just a new future where they're going to earn less and grow slower maybe that was the problem with craft heinz acquisition yeah as in ground zero for i think they're definitely going to grow slower Maybe not something like Nestle. Nestle is like big in the EM, right? But yeah, that's what you need is you have to have you have to win outside of the US now. I got a good question here. Probably, uh, Bill, you might want to have a swing at this one too. But a hypothetical question: If you run, if you were to run an eight to ten stock portfolio, how would you do it? Carefully, by eight or, or ten, com- by yeah. eight or ten companies. <laughs> yeah. I'd find, I'd find eight or ten companies at good prices and buy them. There you go. That's helpful. Yeah, I think you you want to be careful of uh, diversification, something like that. You don't want to have eight, you know, oil companies. You want to have pretty solid diversification. I think you want higher quality businesses in that instance, because you don't you don't really want too much in the way of cyclicals, unless you're on this stuff all the time. So I'd be looking for. You know, a more traditional Buffett type portfolio, I think, would work better for that. Make sure you got, and you got to be checking that you you got the good d- diversification. I'd want geographical diversification, industry sector diversification, because you just can't really have more than one thing in. Because you you get blown up if you got too much in one in one place. Yeah, I mean, I think it I think it depends on like who you are, right? So like my man Mike Mitchell, uh, he does it, but he does it with a lot of like liquidations and stuff. So it, it's it's a different risk profile. My my buddy Francisco, he does it with media assets for the most part, but like I mean that dude can dance circles around most sell side people. So I mean like he really knows his shit when you talk about media with him. So. You know, I don't know. You got to be able to out argue the other people that are in the industry. I I don't have that kind of confidence in myself to run eight names. I would say that you probably want to skew towards really protecting your downside more to be that concentrated and less uh, chasing that sort of optionality. Like, there's a reason that VC baskets are like a hundred companies, right? And you have to make sure that you capture that one true outlier that's going to drive all the performance whereas if you do it on an eight to ten basis boy you're really rolling the dice that you're going to be able to catch one of those high optionality high right skew outcomes and so i think you almost want to go back to the other side and be more concerned about the left side skew um in that that much concentration yeah, I think that's right. And like if you talk to Francisco, he's got a huge position in charter, but he he has that position from like way way back. So, you know, he's not if you look at his portfolio weighting today, it grew into that weighting, right? It's not like he's like, "Oh, that's my weighting out of the gate." Um, so The other thing that I think Mike I think it's does. a skill to hang on, right? Like yeah. Greenblatt has said in the past, when you're that concentrated when when stuff really starts to run on you, that's as much of a learned skill as it is taking the punches. I think one of the things that Michael Mitchell said in our podcast, and we discussed it more recently, and it's, I think that's one of the underappreciated things that Buffett does, is Michael Mitchell got his, and, and you as well, and Curate, um, Michael got, got, is getting his capital back like inside one or two years, right? And I think Buffett did that as well with BNSF. He was getting almost all of his capital back pretty quickly. So I think 
that's an underappreciated you know that they're, they're getting their investment back and then they're whatever's sitting in there you feel a little bit more comfortable letting that run i guess you could you can engineer that by selling half your position right once it's gone up 100 percent. i think buffett would say that's not the right thing to do but somehow getting your capital back from the company is that that gets you past that rule or something like that i don't fully understand what the difference is but i need to think about that one a little bit more there is a one yeah i don't know i was happy when it was selling off it caught a bid which kind of sucks it's still in my screen yeah it's still cheap i'd like it under 10 that's full time amigos whistles blown we're in injury time right now that was fun we'll see everybody next week cheers peace Shake it up, stop when the clock hits 13 Sing one, two, three